You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Tonight, it's a pleasure to host the comeback of Mr. Andreas Steno Larsen, who doesn't need any introduction, but well, he's an art investor, a Real Madrid fan, a Danish guy. I don't know what else. How are you doing, mate? I'm all good. Uh, it's been a while since I've been on this platform, but it's super good to be back. Yeah. Well, I guess everybody is just happy to have you back. Uh, by the way, this is Alf speaking. I write the Macro Compass newsletter, but you have heard enough from me. Today's January 18th, 2022, and the bond market is going ballistic, more or less. So we have the front end, which is now pricing 4.2 hikes, which basically translated means that there is 100% certainty in euro dollar futures that there will be four hikes by the Federal Reserve this year, and there is an additional about 20% chance that there will be a fifth rate hike somewhere down the road. What do you what do you make of this, Andreas? Well, I think three or four months back, I started forecasting three hikes from the Federal Reserve in 2022. And I remember that everybody just started calling me names when I dared saying that. Uh, but uh, all of a sudden, I mean, everybody suddenly agrees that uh, they will have to hike every quarter. Uh, and I even see the debate of a 50 basis point hike in March picking up now, uh, which I simply lack the imagination uh, to 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 consider a, a, a true risk. Um, but who knows? I mean, um, they will have to tighten uh, at least to a certain extent. I think they will get some help from um, from the economy, basically, uh, by itself. Uh, but let's get to that. Well, the interesting part is that um, if you look at curve dynamics, uh, the, so two-year yields are as high, I think, as the 27th of February 2020, so basically before the pandemic. They're 1.04% as we speak. Um, the long end of the curve, though, hasn't really picked up that much. Third-year bond yields are below 2.2%, so uh, the curve has been flattening very aggressively. And, um, you know, you before the, having this, um, this, we had a bilateral conversation where you pointed out at people looking at sort of the wrong yield curve or not paying attention to how flat or steep is the real interest rate curve and how flat or steep is the nominal interest rate curve. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at the real yield curve, uh, the one where you adjust for inflation, uh, then you have a very negative front. Uh, but if you look at the 30-year point, you have roughly 0% real yields. Uh, so that's a much more steep curve to be compared to what you see in the nominal yield curve. Uh, the interesting thing is that it also means that the market over time expects inflation to uh, converge back to the 2% uh, target of the Federal Reserve. Uh, to me, that's the key question for this year. Will it happen sooner or later than priced in? Uh, to me, the risk reward clearly favors a view that it will happen sooner. Um, we already know that in the second quarter of this year, uh, the inflation rate will have to combat material base effects if it wants to stay as high as it is right now. Um, so my uh, my money would be placed on inflation disappointing, not the uh, not the opposite. So basically to break down for the listeners, 
obviously the difference between nominal interest rate curve and real interest rate curve is inflation expectation or inflation break evens are the, as they're called in jargon. And um, basically, Andres is pointing out to the fact that uh, long-term inflation expectations so 30-year inflation expectation or five-year forward, five-year, they actually have gone down over mm. the last month, month and a half, while nominal interest rates are going up, which is, you know, quite a dynamics. Uh, we've pulled a chart that shows, uh, this is some work I've done at the Macro Compass that shows the credit impulse and then inflation break-evens, 10-year inflation break-evens lagged by 12 months against this credit impulse. And so as credit impulse basically has peaked a while ago and it's now plateaued, as there are no basically new stimmies coming and mm -hmm. bank lending is has not picked up yet to actually um, offset that, you have inflation expectation normally uh, plateauing first and then starting to revert back when there is no new credit flowing to the economy. Do you have a similar theory, Andreas? Why do you expect inflation expectation to revert back? Or, Yeah, I do. Uh, and one important thing to notice in that regards is how correlated the uh, inflation expectations are with the oil price. Uh, and I'm not talking about the nominal oil price, but the running change in the oil price since a year ago. Uh, and uh, what we will see uh, in the second half of this year, uh, basically throughout the commodity space, but in particular in uh, oil markets and uh, also natural gas markets, is a very negative base effect um, due to the fact that we saw such a big increase in, um, in the commodity space during the second half of last year. Uh, so it will be very tricky to keep um, inflation rates when you measure them uh, on a running basis against the year prior high into the second half of this year, also in commodity space. And that should also lead to a uh, negative effect on um, on inflation expectations in the uh, inflation swap market. Well, as we speak, we're painting a pretty bleak picture. But in the meantime, we have 10-year Treasury yields trying to test 187%. So how sustainable do you think this move is? Uh, I'm a bit scared to say that the timing is now to go against it. But the timing is soon, at least. I know that you tried to go against the uh, the move already today, Elf. Uh, and uh, my point is that we still have a couple of months where it will be uh, at least decently possible to beat the inflation rate from 2021. Uh, so the monthly uh, increases in the dollar inflation in January and February 2021 were pretty low. Uh, so it is actually possible to see even high inflation rates over the next couple of months, which is which is why I want to wait a bit with the outright long duration bet, uh, so buying long bonds. Uh, but I still think that the safest bet right now at all is just to flatten the yield curve, uh, for example, between the third year point and the five year point. Uh, I think it can flatten much quicker than uh, anticipated by forward pricing. So uh, interesting thing is that if you clean the noise away from basically the, the credit spread between treasuries and swaps, and you just look at the pure swap curve, so five-year swaps and third-year swaps, and you look at that slope of the curve, you actually have the spread being only 26 basis points between five-year dollar swaps and 30-year dollar swaps. So it's quickly getting to zero. Um, can you give the audience basically your rationale why that curve is going quickly to zero and why do you expect basically to continue? Uh, we've been talking a lot about so-called quantitative tightening so far this year, uh, which means that the Federal Reserve plans on bringing the nominal amount of assets on its balance sheet down 
over the next couple of years. Um, to me, that's really the key uh, when we are talking about a flattening yield curve. Interestingly, uh, when the Federal Reserve talks about quantitative tightening, they actually expect that process to steepen the yield curve, uh, since what they do in this process is that they allow uh, the private market to uh, swallow uh, bonds with a longer duration again. Uh, but the interesting thing is that empirically, you've actually seen the exact opposite effect throughout such a, um, a process, for example, in 2018, 2019. Uh, the point here is that when you withdraw dollar reserves from the financial system, I think there is a tendency for this to spill over to a uh, higher cost of capital, uh, for example, via higher credit spreads, uh, but maybe also via uh, weaker multiples for, uh, for companies seeking new equity. Uh, and the higher cost of capital will eventually lead to a weaker uh, activity level. Uh, and I think that is essentially what you should expect from the second half of this year, as the Fed is already paving the way for this process to unfold itself. Uh, so to me, um, QT means weaker activity than anticipated. Uh, and therefore, you could actually get uh, a scenario where long bond yields will drop. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's break down for a second this quantitative tightening story. I've recently published a piece at the Macro Compass that also covers that. And basically, if you are a private sector entity that during QE got a lot of bonds taken away from your balance sheet and exchange with something that is a zero duration, zero yield, zero risk reserve or bank deposit. If you're not a bank, then you're a pension fund. Instead of a bank reserve, you get a bank deposit, but you know it's basically useless. It's inert. It's sitting there and doing nothing. Um, then obviously what you would try to do over time is to rebalance maybe your portfolio back to a certain risk appetite that you have. Maybe you have some risk on the liability side of the balance sheet you need to hedge. So you, you tend to recycle some of this risk back into first treasuries, then credit spreads, et cetera, et cetera. And this virtuous cycle of low volatility, tighter credit spreads is backed by this process. Qualitative tightening is basically the opposite, right? I mean, you just revert back everything. You drain these reserves from the market and you make the private sector absorb, as you said before, net net new bonds, right? So Obviously, when that happens, you need to make room um, or you, basically you are not crowded out anymore. You're crowded in the bond market. So you need to make room for those. And as you make room for those, then your appetite marginally to move and buy high yield bonds becomes, you know, just less because you need to make, first of all, room to buy your treasuries back that you, you didn't you didn't have any, um, you know, natural appetite to buy before as you were crowded out by QE. QT is just the opposite. Yeah. And now I'm going to say something that will not make you happy, Alf. Uh, but uh, the interesting thing is that uh, during the process of QT, you will actually see the market getting collateral back uh, in return for cash. So the issue that we've had over the past couple of years is that we have uh, too much cash and too little collateral. Uh, and the QT process will lead things in the opposite direction, meaning that uh, cash will be less um, abundant uh, and collateral will be less scarce. To me, that means that it will be easier to take 
bets against sovereign curves, for example, the Italian one, uh, because it will simply be cheaper to bet against uh, uh, the Italian sovereign curve, meaning that you will uh, lend the bond and short it. Um, and therefore, I think you should uh, expect such events to show up uh, during 2022, where you will have targeted attempts to, to bet against curves like the Italian one again. Yeah, and so from, a, from from also from a European perspective, I mean, come on, we are Italian and Danish. We should talk talk about Europe a bit as well. Um, if a process like quantitative tightening happens in Europe as well, and I do expect the ECB balance sheet to reduce this year on a net basis, um, when that happens, basically as you described, the imbalance between uh, let's call it cash, well reserves, anyway, mm -hmm. cash uh, for simplicity, and collateral which during QE gets much more skewed towards abundant cash and um, slowly reducing amount of collateral in the system and it gets taken away from QE, basically in QT just gets the opposite effect, right? I mean, you get these reserves drained from the system and the collateral being pumped back again into the system. And so when you reverse this imbalance and you favor collateral rather than, um, so there is an abundance of collateral relative to the abundance of reserves into the system, the first victim, very often overlooked, is the repo market. So generally when repo transactions happen, the price or the yield of this repo is set um, given the demand and supply of collateral relative to cash. And if you invert these dynamics, then repo levels are gonna, of course, suffer, which makes, as you said, um, shorting several markets more affordable in the first place. And so, the most vulnerable parts of the market, which in, maybe in the US can be high yields or mm. in Europe can be BTPs are generally, so Italian bonds are generally the ones that might tend to suffer at the beginning a bit more. Yeah. And I think into this scenario, I would still consider uh, credit spreads uh, in high yield space to be generally too low. Um, that, that could be one clear victim into this uh, QT process unfolding. Yeah. And if we um, move back to the good old stock market, I mean, we're yeah. talking basically about a trickle down. Well, that's wow, that's a scary term to use in economics. It never works, but let's try yeah. <laughs> a trickle down effect from the repo market to risk free rates and then to credit spreads and then to equity markets. Am I making this right or potentially? Yes, uh, I think that's more of a dark horse. Uh, at least I would envisage rotational place uh, into such a scenario in equity space. I'm not sure that uh, we will see a massive drawdown on uh, on index level. I, uh, I, I wouldn't bet on that, at least. Um, and uh, therefore, I would be on the watch for the sectors that are clearly overweighted right now. Uh, everything's cyclical. Um, so that means, means banks, energy, um, sectors like that. Uh, they are... As you can see from the fund manager survey, uh, clearly favored by market participants right now. And if we get a, um, a rotational play into a slowing economy uh, with a QT process unfolding, then I would expect uh, the fund managers to leave such sectors in favor of, um, of less risky equities, uh, you might say, uh, within uh, other sectors. And that could be pharma, for example. Yeah. So as we're talking, basically, we're making a climax on higher and higher risk and volatility assets. We started from repo, then treasuries, then credit spreads, then equities. I want our listeners to actually um, listen to a conversation that happened on Real Vision between Mike Green and Ben Savage, where they actually talk about 
um, volatility and how investors are digesting this asset class uh, and how are they looking at volatility today? Well, I think it translates to more risk, right? I don't think folks change what they want in terms of lifestyle, right? I mean, if anything goes the other way, people want more out of life than they've been getting pre this vol shock that crystallized a higher risk tolerance. And they sort of go, okay, I want the same level or better of returns that I was getting before. Um, but, I, but I'm willing to take more risk to get there in aggregate. And so that functionally lowers the anticipated sharp ratio across all asset classes in order to then get to the return levels that I want, I essentially have to move more and more into higher risk asset classes. I have to lever up. I have to actually take more risk on from a market standpoint, um, which in some sense is reflective of there's actually more risk in the world. As I said, reality vol, which is independent of humanity, has just gone up. Um, but, uh, and the parts that are dependent on humanity have gone up. But from a market standpoint, yeah, nobody wants to own the sort of safe, boring, low, uh, low vol, high sharp asset. Um, you'd rather own the high vol, low sharp asset and have more of a chance of like winning the lottery. And so I do think what that will ultimately imply is, you know, even if yields come back up, nobody's gonna wanna own bonds. Um, uh, because they're just not going to return enough to be interesting in this world. Um, and you see it like in, in my world, which is venture capital, you see it very much in the capital inflows into this asset class, um, which is theoretically anyway, among the highest volatility asset classes available without using leverage um, to investors. And there's this ongoing flood of capital into venture, which isn't so much chasing yield, it's chasing volatility. And this interesting conversation between Ben Savage and Mike Green is available for all tiers subscribers at Real Vision. And Andreas, basically, Ben there was uh, saying, uh, you know, that ultimately winning the lottery is what mattered the most for people in 2021. <laughs> and you were just talking about pharma. I mean, this boring, low beta stuff that it's all but winning the lottery, right? When you, when you look at the stock market. So you basically have a different take on, on sector and sector rotations, correct? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the environment that we are approaching uh, is uh, an environment with, uh, for me, less risk appetite than what we saw in 2021. And that's essentially all, also the only direction risk appetite could move in, right? I'm not saying that this will be a mayhem, but I mean, it, it will move in a slightly more conservative direction uh, due to the fact that central banks will not uh, keep pushing the, uh, the party, right? Um, so therefore, I uh, already now would start planning on rotating my, uh, my equities into uh, more defensive sectors. Yeah, we're talking about commodities. We touched that before, and we're looking at oil that keeps on rallying. Um, yeah. At the same time, interestingly, we're looking at certain pockets of the emerging market worlds that are, you know, kind of shaking up. Russia, the latest example, Turkey before that. So what's your view on, on industrial commodities or commodities in general and emerging markets? Uh, I would be super short industrial commodities. Uh, and I know this is a, a contrarian bet already now uh, as well. Um, the reason is that if you look at the um, correlation between credit creation and industrial commodities, that is maybe the strongest link you have between credit and uh, asset classes in general. Uh, since um, credit creation 
in the real economy usually filters directly into activity such as um, buildings and uh, and and uh, other very um, thorough uses of uh, commodities, right? Uh, so as soon as you withdraw credit, uh, which is exactly what is about to happen, then uh, you will see uh, a, a, a small demand for industrial commodities very soon. Um, so a key uh, topic for me this year, industrial commodities is a big short. And I guess then all emerging markets that are high level to this asset class actually are not amongst your preferred markets. <laughs> No, um, I, I mean uh, the regions are, are, are to a certain extent obvious, right? Brazil uh, could be one example, Russia another example um, of um, of countries very clearly linked to this cycle. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. As you came back uh, after a while live on a show, we have quite some questions from the audience too. Um, used to be pretty big, I have to say, in calls when it, uh, came to effects. So there is a question yeah. on euro dollar. Where do you see that going? Uh, 105, <laughs> to be very <laughs> precise. Um, I mean, uh, that's been my target for a while. Um, and I've been short in my thinking on euro dollar since um, uh, basically last summer. Uh, the reason is that I uh, expect the balance sheet drawdown of the Federal Reserve to be more aggressive than that of the ECB, uh, simply due to the fact that there is a bigger chance that the Federal Reserve can actually get going with this process than the European Central Bank. Uh, for example, due to the uh, uh, scenario that we talked about with Italian bonds. Um, so my expectation is that the uh, rundown of the um, Fed balance sheet will be swifter than that of the European Central Bank. And that should uh, uh, lead the way for a stronger dollar versus the euro, uh, for example, via a, uh, a move in the cross-currency basis swap. Yeah, and we have another one about China which is an interesting debate at the moment because the PBOC has started some easing, at least mm -hmm. we have seen the first action being taken. If you look at credit impulse from China, there are some very shy attempts at that series to revert back after a basically back-to-back -back fall for, I don't know, a year almost in a row. Um, so we also had uh, Xi Jinping coming out and saying that uh, the US raising interest rates might be not beneficial for markets and for the economy. The question mm -hmm. from the audience is, why do you think it came out with such a statement? I mean, is there, and what do you expect from China as well in 2022? I, first of all, I expect them to continue to ease. Uh, so, so what they were after in uh, 2021 was a clear victim in the real estate sector, uh, since they basically found from the uh, authorities that the sector was too levered up. Um, so they needed to send a signal to that sector. Uh, that's been done now, um, and uh, Evergrande uh, is is basically a, a, a company um, that is very very close to collapsing. Right, we've we've uh, been talking about that for for a couple of quarters now, uh, and in that process, the international investors basically got the middle finger as per usual in um, in investing in China. Uh, so the problem here is that um, I expect China to ease. I also expect China to pick up pace before the Western world again. 
so it sounds like a very tempting long, right? Uh, both the equity market, maybe even even also the bond market, right? Um, and why not? I mean, if if you don't care about the political risk of of being long China, then I actually think it's a good case. Actually, um, I might want to launch a new trademark trade, the Chinese risk parity trade, where you lift both equities and bonds there. But um, obviously, things work with a lag. And despite, yeah. well, in China, clearly, as they have a much broader control of credit and the effect of central banks easing policy can be much more direct because they can simply ask state-owned banks to redirect credit where they want to so normally things can go a little bit quicker there but as they have just started we probably need a little bit more confirmation that the easing is really ongoing and the credit creation as well is really ongoing but if that is the case then um yeah well chinese equities and chinese bonds as well might seem a decent place where to be, especially for the second half of this year. Yeah, I perfectly agree. And I find it very interesting that we have such an upside down world in uh, in terms of where central banks are headed in the Western world compared to Asia, uh, because uh, it's basically in uh, completely opposite directions. And there is also a question on uh, dollar and FX uh, uh, basically that are related to high beta commodity. So they're asking you, what's your view on Aussie dollars and the Norwegian krona and Canadian dollars against uh, US dollars? Uh, also here, I like to be long uh, the US dollar. Uh, so I basically think the dollar will be king into the environment that we are headed into. Um, the issue with uh, the Norwegian krona and the Canadian dollar is that they are super linked to oil prices, obviously, uh, and therefore they will likely also suffer the uh, same fate as uh, what we talked about on uh, the credit cycle and industrial commodities. They will be very linked to the demand picture on commodities, uh, which I find to be very close to peaking. Uh, the supply side is always what people tend to focus on when it comes to commodities. So uh, where you get an edge on the market is via focusing on the demand side, and that will turn south. Yeah, so um, I think I have a uh, closing question for you. Um, as I've come out now on Twitter publicly that my tactical trade is to be long treasuries, although there are also more strategic trades and asset allocation uh, medium term that I've pointed out at the Macro Compass, what is your uh, preferred expression at the moment. Come on, you cannot hide. No, um, I am tempted to say that I also want to be long duration in dollars. Uh, so I actually agree with the trade that you sent out earlier today, Alf. Uh, I know that you are a couple of basis points out of the money already. Uh, so maybe I get a better entry point by saying that you should go long 10-year treasuries right now because Ladies I actually think... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Andreas is taking cover. He's basically taking the same trade, but he's already three basis points, better entry than me. I mean, he's really a smart guy, is it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I can only thank you for uh, for being here with us, Andreas. It's been a tremendous pleasure to have you back. I think the whole macro community benefits from uh, you being back on the screen. And um, the other thing I want to say is that, uh, of course, tomorrow there will be another Real Vision Daily briefing, as there is one every day. Ash Bennington will be back with Darius Dale. So don't don't lose that. It's going to be fun. And uh, the conversation continues on Real Vision Exchange as well. If you want to post other questions or comments, Andreas and I can pick them up. Thanks, Andreas, for being here with us. Thanks for hosting me.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.